Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is a middle grade novel available as a paperback and audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, and I also wrote a young adult novel under the super secret pen name Robert Kent called All Together Now A Zombie Story. And since we're going to be talking young adult novels and uh, uh, middle grade as well this evening, I figured I'd let you know about both All Together Now A Zombie Story. you got to pay cash money for it, but I promise it's so worth it. Uh, so check that out, as always, for interviews with thousands of uh, literary agents, authors, editors, all the world's best people. Head to middlegradeninja.com. And that's more than enough intro. we got to get started. Uh, my guest this evening is none other than the author, Gail Foreman. Uh, Gail Foreman, how are you? Pretty good, Rob. How are you? I am thrilled to talk with you. And esteemed audience uh, listens uh, to the show regularly. They know that I, I, I often say that I'm thrilled to talk with people. And I always am. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to talk to so many wonderful, distinguished authors. Uh, I never know who I'm going to be sitting across from, and it's, it's just a thrill uh, to get to talk with you this evening. Uh, a steep audience knows that I never summarize anybody else's book or anybody else's biography. Why would I make you sit through me doing either of those things when you're right here? Uh, so if you would, give a steamed audience kind of an overview of your background, and we'll go from there. Okay, esteemed audience, here we go. My name is Gail Foreman. I am a novelist best known for young adult novels, including If I Stay, Where She Went, the Just One series, most recently We Are Inevitable. I used to be a journalist and still occasionally do write for publications. And my very first middle grade novel is Frankie and Bug, and it comes out in October. What else do you want to know about me? I live in Brooklyn, New York with my family and my cat Gigi, who is part of my family. So um, lots of uh, questions. Congratulations on uh, on the first middle grade novel. Uh, as esteemed audience, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, uh, Frankie and Bug will be out Tuesday, so you can be pre-ordering it right now. If you're listening to us later, good news, it's already in the world. You can just go buy it. Uh, so you'll be in good shape. Um, I'd love to start kind of with the, the beginning and, 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 and where you got to go, because you're a journalist. Uh, you're writing for 17, for Cosmopolitan, for, for LA, and you were with 17, what, for about five years as a contributing reporter? Does that yeah, mean you're I was a staff writer, and then I was a contributing editor. So what, what's the difference between those two then? Staff writer was I was on staff. I was in the office and then I became a contributing writer when I went freelance. And so I would do a certain number of articles a year for 17. But then I branched out and wrote for other magazines. And that was when I discovered that the teen magazine was doing the most nuanced, um, introspective, like interesting, important stories. So as usual, the one aimed at kids was doing it better than the grown up stuff. Uh, and how does um, working with working with a background in journalism, does that help to prepare you to be a fiction writer or is that a completely separate set of skills? It was a gradual thing. So I was a journalist and then in 2002, I traveled around the world for a year with my husband and I did a nonfiction book that combined like memoir of like what it was like traveling post 9-11 with Nick, but also it had 
um, these eight reported sections, chapters that looked at how sort of globalization was culturally changing these subcultures in places that, you know, were, were at least according to people in the US, you know, pretty far off the, the beaten track. So I think in writing that particular book, I learned sort of how to write narrative, how to sort of do a narrative story, because each one of those stories, it interspersed sort of reported things, but with an actual story. And I was a magazine journalist, which means I wrote longer form pieces. You had dialogue. And I think all of that trained me to become a novelist long before I had any inclinations of becoming a novelist, back when I thought that writing fiction seemed impossible. Because when you're writing an article, you have the facts, you have deadlines, you have word counts, you have the sort of parameters within um, with which to write. And I, I thought if you remove those, how how could you ever decide what to write about if you could write about anything? And then I discovered after I, I had my first child and didn't want to travel anymore, which I had to do for my job, that it was incredibly liberating to be able to abandon all of that and make it up. And better yet, I had kind of, from all of those years of taping, um, interviews and then transcribing them. I really think I'd gotten the cadence of how people talk and I learned how to write a narrative. So when I sat down to write my first novel, it turned out I, I kind of knew what to do. And you didn't publish your first book till about uh, age 34. Do I have the timing right on that? Yes, and I, I think that's important for would-be novelists and writers out there because I think there's this feeling like I meet sometimes 16-year-olds that are worried that they haven't finished their first novel. And I point out that I didn't publish my first book until I was 34. My first novel was 37. And that, um, you know, novel writing is not like Olympic level gymnastics. You don't peak out when you're 20. And the more life experience you, ma you amass, like the better you can become at your craft. So yes, the short answer is I was 34 when I published my first book, 37 when I published my first novel. And 39 when I published If I Stay, which was like the novel, the first one that anybody read. <laughs> well, uh, had you wanted to be an author before that? Not an author um, and not even a writer when I was growing up, which was strange because all I did was make up stories. Even before I could write, I was making up stories. And then as soon as I could write, I was making up stories. I was writing plays, I was writing poems. I was even writing like this proto novel, this like endless novel that just sort of went on and on and on because I so enjoyed doing it. But it wasn't until I went to college and I started college a little late at 21 because I took a few years off to travel first. It wasn't until I started college, initially thinking I was gonna become a doctor and go work with Doctors Without Borders and then realized that wasn't for me and fell into journalism that I realized I wanted to be a writer um, professionally. And even that was, you know, I was in college for four years and then 12 years as a professional journalist before I ever thought that I would write fiction. And did you always have an aptitude for, for language and, and grammar and all the rest of it? I mean, yes and no, I, I think so. My dad keeps this little laminated note in his wallet from when I was like three or four where we were at the beach and I said, all there is is fog, no smog. I'm from LA, no sun and no fun. So, you know, I think I, I like to play with language early on, but I also was not a great reader at the beginning. And my mom, I believe I was tested when I was younger for like the whatever gifted and talented program they had at my local school. And they told my mother that not only was I 
not gifted and talented, but that I didn't pattern correctly and I would have a hard time writing. So definitely did not see myself as a writer in any which way, even though by the time I was like 10 or 11, I was a voracious reader. It just never, and I love to write, but I never connected those two things. I never saw myself as a person who could who could write those books or write any books. And at the time, your uh, your husband was a punk musician, that, and you yep. were traveling a bit with him as well. Is that is that right? He's a he's a punk punk musician who became a librarian. So he's of that small subculture of the punk rock librarian. There's there's quite a few of them out out there actually. Oh, that's got to come in handy when you're writing young adult novels to have a librarian right there in the house. <laughs> it's helpful because he's a researcher, so he helps with research. And because I write about music so much, music leaves in and out of my YA books, um, he's incredibly helpful for that kind of thing, too. And when you write a book, do you create a playlist? Sometimes I don't create a specific playlist. What winds up happening is it's, I just listen to the same thing over and over again and I'll listen to the same music over and over again so that becomes my playlist and then sometimes I'll create a playlist after the fact that that actually sort of evokes the book and we have one for Frankie and Bug that we sort of created that's music that's mentioned or music that feels of the book but it's not it's not necessarily I don't, I don't sort of I definitely don't do a playlist when I'm writing because certain days I will need complete silence and certain days I'll just want like a certain kind of mood music that will get me emotionally where I need to be to write and I never know what that's going to be ahead of time. So when we're talking the same music, are we talking like the single song that always puts you into like a like a like a hypnotic trance that oh I'm in the it's story? Different, different for every book. So with if I stay every, when I sat down to write. Every single time I would play that song Falling Slowly from from Once, which I had just seen, you know, we're going back to like 2008 here. And I had just seen that. And so every time I played that song, it would make me cry. I don't know why. It's not a sad song. It's just sort of melancholy and it would put me in the mood I needed to be. So that was If I Stay. I think for other books. I would listen to, um, you know, there was like for just one day, I'm dating myself again. I remember I listened to Adele a lot. When I was writing We Are Inevitable, the Talking Heads come into play and I found myself re-listening because I'm a huge Talking Heads fan, but it's been a couple of years since I've really sort of sat down and played album after album. And so I kind of wound up playing like Talking Heads 77 and, um, you know, the different Fear of Music, all my favorite albums. I would just play those sort of over and over again as I was working. And with, uh, you mentioned Falling Slowly, I've, have you seen The Last Man on Earth with the Jason Sudeikis and uh, Will Forte uh, doing the duet of that song to each other? No, I need to. Worth worth looking up. It's 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 a comedic version. Uh, unfortunately, it, it was so funny that every time I hear that song, I can only think of their. their got <laughs> it. Got it. Yeah. Well, I mean, they can do that. Jason Sudeikis, man, he's uh, having a year. Yeah, I need to catch up on on Ted Lasso. I'm thrilled that they're. Ted Lasso kept me kept me afloat last year. So, um, is there a particular song for Frankie and Bug? You know, I made a list after, and now I've been listening to the list, so it's very sort of eighty centric, and so. Um, I think there was sort of Bronski beat. I, I can't remember the name of the song off the top of my head. Talking Heads Again, Psycho Killer. 
um, Pet Shop Boys, so it really, Duran Duran, like it really did reunite me with a lot of this sort of music from my youth because Frankie and Bug is set in the 1980s, which is when I was a kid, um, which makes it historical fiction, which cracks me up. But it was once again, when I was listening to it, it, it really just, it brings you back. I mean, that's one of the things I love about music, similar to, to smell is like, you can just hear a song or you can smell something and it's like a time machine. It's amazing. So I really did find when I was listening to those songs, composing the Frankie and Bug playlist, that it, it sort of catapulted me back to the 80s as much as writing the book did. And I had uh, read that one of your reasons uh, for writing uh, was to get yourself out of poverty. Um, you were you were eager to to make uh, to make some money with writing. At what point, while you were writing, did it, did did it did it become clear to you that oh, I really could make a living doing this? You know, I still sometimes have my doubts about it. It's it, I don't think the doubts ever go away. And, and and esteemed audience, don't do like what I did, where you're like, oh my God, I, I, I'm broke, I have to write a book. But it's what happened. I had, um, I had had a child, my daughter who just turned 17 was a baby, and I had written this nonfiction book, and I suddenly found that I couldn't sort of make my living the way I normally had, which was traveling around and r reporting stories. And I was I was broke, and so I remember sort of, asking someone like asking my agent at the time I said do you have any things any ghostwriting things anything I can do and she she had a young adult novel and she said well I have this young adult novel that needs a ghostwriter but you'd be better off writing it yourself and of course I spent my entire you know most of my career writing for 17 writing about young people and for young people so when she said that the idea just clicked and I think within four days I'd written like the first you know 25 percent of my first young adult novel which is called Sisters Insanity so you know, I wrote a couple of other books under pseudonym and didn't make a living. And then when If I Stay started to, you know, become such a success, I think then I realized, okay, maybe I can I can sort of give up some of the other things that I was doing. I was teaching, I was doing magazine editing, I was still writing for magazines. So sort of slowly I let that up, but I, I will tell you, I don't think there's ever a moment in time, even after your your book gets turned into a film where you're like, I'm sitting on easy street. I mean, that's that's writing. It's it's you know, one book can be beloved and huge, and another book maybe doesn't do as well. So I don't know that I've gotten to that point yet where I'm just like, I can do this for my living, even though I have been a you know a full-time author now since you know 2009 or so. See, I had expected <laughs> to tell me that you're you're you've arrived at the promised land. You've got <laughs> There is a promised land, and, and I, I honestly think maybe there shouldn't be. You know, I think that every time I write a book, I, I have that doubt that I'm going to be able to do it, that, that I'm going to be able to take the idea and, and, and get it to where it needs to be. And I've learned that that's part of the process, and it's part of what keeps you honest and makes sure that for me that the work is as good as it needs to be. And sometimes it means putting books away for, for years because they're just not ready. You know, I can't seem to find my way with a certain book. And I used to think I was throwing all these books away, but what's happened is there's all these books that I started years ago. Frankie and Bug, I started in 2013. We Are Inevitable, which came out in June. I started in, you know, 2018. 
and or 2016 and so you I write books and then I think oh these are no good and they leave them on my hard drive but then I come back to them at a time where I've had some distance from them and I'm ready to do it and so I think without those doubts without that fear maybe I would I would have lower standards for myself I'm not sure well, at this point do you have an estimate on how many uh, how many books are in some form of gestation that we can hopefully look forward to at some point? I mean, this has been a big year because I had I had We Are Inevitable, which came out in June. I have Frankie and Bug, which, as I mentioned, has been in gestation for like eight years and it's coming out in October. And I'm thrilled about that. And I'm just finishing up um, a revision of, of, a, of an adult novel that will, you know, be in a couple of years. And then there's, yeah, there's like a, two or three other things. I have, an, I have a new middle grade that I've started drafting. So um, some of them are things that are on the hard drive and some of them are things that, um, you know, are new ideas. Do you keep like uh, an idea journal someplace or a file of just thoughts that, hey, maybe I'll come back to this later and it will be a book or? My idea journal is more like the first 10,000 words of a novel that I'm like, this is great, I'm gonna do it. And I sit down, I'm all hot straw and I start writing. And then I, you know, I lose steam or I, or I don't love it as much or I go back and look at them like, or something else. It's like a horse race. Something else pulls ahead. So that really is my idea journal. My my hard drive has, you know, so many different ideas. You know, sometimes it really is just like a five page idea that I had for something. And I wish going back to our, the beginning of our conversation, I wish I could write a book a month, a book a week. A book every three months but I can't keep up with myself I can't make it as much as I want to do it at that pace yeah I can't either I, I'm, I'm deeply envious of those who can because it's just not within my skill set yeah like I'm reading Victoria Schwab I'm reading finally reading The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue which not only is she incredibly prolific but her writing and her world building is incredible and it's just the way some people's brains work so bless them i'm envious as well and i'm but i'm also grateful because we get to read what they create what uh, are your reading habits at this point how how many books would you say you're reading a year a month i i, I try you know i think i read on average about 50 books a year so it probably comes out to about one a week but I listen to a lot of things on audio, so I have that. Um, so I do a strange mix. So I tend to listen to nonfiction on audio, not exclusively. This summer, I had a lot of like household chores to do. I was I'm renovating a house upstate, so while I'm peeling off paint, I like to that kind of thing. I like to just listen to a novel. So, but generally, I listen to nonfiction, and then I'm usually reading one or two books at a time. So I'll have like a library book on a Kindle and that's the kind of thing I read in the middle of the night so I can wake up and read and not wake anybody up and then I'll have you know a paper book that is you know I'm carrying around everywhere and it's a mix of YA middle grade adult graphic novel and as I mentioned sort of the audio uh, nonfiction. And is there a, a difference for you as to the type of book you might now insist on a paper copy of versus one that's okay for the Kindle or is it just luck of the draw? If I could read everything, this is going to make me so unpopular. If I could read everything on a Kindle, I would, but I want to buy books from indie bookstores. So I buy paper books from indie bookstores and I buy my audiobooks from indie bookstores through Libro FM. 
I hate reading a hardcover um, because I like to read in bed or I like to read like laying down and it's just very awkward and all of that. So I will read a paperback um, in, in like I, if I'm reading a paperback, I'll read a paperback if it's not too long. Length is another thing. If it's like a really huge book, it really comes down to ergonomics. So but I tend to buy a lot of new releases anyhow in um, so sometimes I'll actually buy the book to support the author and have the book on my shelf and then read a library version of it so that I can just have it with me all the time. I love the fact that I can also read my library books like when I'm on the train and I, I forgot to bring a Kindle with me so I just pop it up and start reading. Oh yeah, I got blessed by a local library during the uh, pandemic with yeah. the Programs for ebooks and audiobooks. I and audiobooks. I love Libby. Me and Libby are best friends. So um, I definitely want to ask you some questions about If I Stay and the movie, because that's every author's dream, right? You have your novel turned into the movie. Yeah. Uh, but I want to tease that and promise the esteemed audience that we're definitely, before we're done here, we're definitely going to talk about that. But I love the idea that. You are this prolific young adult novelist who's now embarking on, on a middle grade journey. In fact, I had read uh, that you had said that you'd never set out to write YA. It just seems that you're drawn to stories about young people. What do you think that is? You know, I, I thought about that a lot because my answer used to be like, I don't know why young people are the vehicle I want to tell the story through. but. When I wrote an adult novel, I think it became more clear to me. And I think one of the issues is, is that young people are allowed to feel their feelings. They are given license to feel their feelings. And I think there's this idea, I think it's a misconception, I don't think it's true, that as you age, you don't feel things as strongly. That's not true. I think you are not allowed to show yourself feeling them as strongly and you have to learn to temper your reaction. But I think that, you know, I feel things just as strongly now as I did when I was when I was 17. So when you write young adult fiction in particular, where you're at a stage of life where everything is just so extra and so you're so full of the feels, there's an exhilaration to being able to go straight to that, not having to kind of dance around it. I think a lot of adult fiction really has to do with what happens when people are not allowed to feel their feelings and that makes for some really interesting fiction and subterfuge and what have you but i think that there's a an immediacy to writing young adult and writing in that voice that to me feels very i don't know it's it just feels very pure and very raw and very cathartic to write in that voice on your uh, website is uh, the moniker All the Feels. I don't know, is that is that like a, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is that, is, is, is that, do you feel that encompasses your work or what is the significance of that? I, I, years ago, before All the Feels was like a particularly um, common phrase, I noticed that readers would describe my books that way, All the Feels. So I just kind of like stole that from what readers were already saying. And I think what it means is that in my in my work, I think the reason you want to read a book, a Gail Foreman book, is that it delivers an emotional experience. It, you I, you will identify with the characters and feel as if they are you, whether you want to or not. And I think that that can create a really powerful emotional experience. All the feels. Sometimes the feels make you laugh, sometimes the feels make you cry, sometimes they make you swoon, but I think that's really where that comes from. And it's why I kind of adopted it. And then I put it away for a while because everything was all the feels, but then I realized it really did. You know, I'm writing in all these different 
age groups and sort of different genres, but wherever you go, there you are. And I think that that is the kind of story that my books deliver. Do you, uh, do you cry when you uh, are writing? Yes, I do. And, you know, chances are if you're crying while you're reading it, I was crying while I write it. And I also like my, one of my best friends is the author, Libba Bray. And so she and I will talk through things and sometimes I'll know I've hit something because I'll be talking to her about something and I'll start to cry and choke up. And just today I was with another friend who had read a draft of something of mine and the ending wasn't quite working. And I, I had an idea for a new ending and she started to cry. So I'm like, there we go, done. Crying is important. I feel like when you cry ahead of time, you're crying while you're writing it. And then are you crying afterward when you're hearing it? It depends. Like if I stay, I cry the entire way through. Other books, there's just these these moments in time. And usually it's moments of redemption, not moments of sadness that make me cry. Um, so it's it's different in, in different times. But I definitely cry while drafting the books, every single book, without fail. And I assume you you laugh and, uh, and are, are are generally happy with the characters at, at times as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are inevitable, particularly and Frankie and Bob. So many so many comic moments. I just I, I had fun with them. Let's uh, let's talk Frankie and Bug, and, and we'll go back and we'll talk a little bit about Libba Bray. And and I know you're the godmother to her dog. Is that right? I'm the the god dog mother. Yes. God dog mother. Yes. Uh, but Frankie, uh, Frankie and Bug, that's your first middle grade novel. So why? Well, I'm going to hold that question. And I promised I would not summarize your book. Right. Uh, so please tell the esteemed audience what they need to know about Frankie and Bug. Great. Frankie and Bug is about two young people, Frankie and Bug, who, who become reluctant friends. So in, it takes place in the summer of 1987. And they become reluctant friends when Frankie comes from Ohio to live with his uncle, Philip, who lives above Bug and her family in Venice Beach. And at first they don't get along so well. Um, Frankie does not want to go to the beach and Bug thinks that he's brought here, been brought here to go to the beach with her because her older brother Danny is too cool to hang out with her. So it's a little rough at first, but there's a criminal terrorizing Los Angeles named the Midnight Marauder. And they come together and they begin investigating the Midnight Marauder. And in the process, they uncover some family secrets and they wind up learning a lot about each other, about the world, about what it means to show up for somebody and be an ally, and also the difference between something being fair and something being just. There's a, a phrase that Bugs Mama repeats over and over again, that life isn't fair, the most you can hope for is that it's just. And I really think that it's Bug coming to understand that life is not fair. But it's up to her, it's up to all of us to try and make it more just. Ooh, uh, who's the ideal reader for this story? You know, I don't know that I can answer that. I think it's, you know, any age. I, I think, you know, it starts at eight years old and you can read this, but I think this is a book that, that adults will appreciate as well. I think it's a book for anybody who's ever questioned where their place in the world is. It's definitely a book for, you know, I think older readers like myself who aren't middle grade readers, but will enjoy the nostalgia of 1980s Los Angeles. But really, I wanted to write this book for young people, for today's young people, to kind of show them how quickly the world can change in some ways, which should give people hope, but also how stubbornly it can stay the same in other ways. And that 
hope is an active verb. It, hope is work. Hope means doing something to get to the place you want to be. So in that case, I, I wanted that I wanted to write this book for young people because in many senses I feel like they already know that. And I wanted to affirm what they know and by showing them a story that took place in the not so distant past, I wanted to show them that it is possible for change to happen, but that we all have to kind of push into it together. And why was uh, 1987 the, the, the perfect year for this? Originally I said it in 1986, which was when the serial killer on which I based the Midnight Marauder um, was sort of out and about, that was the Night Stalker, but I wanted to kind of fictionalize it a little bit. Um, and move it away from an actual serial killer. So I just decided to move it up a year to 1987. The 80s were important because, you know, without giving too much away, the the mid to late 80s is when we started to sort of see some some changes in terms of what rights people wanted and expected. And when I was thinking about the world of the book, about how certain things had changed, I was thinking about Philip, um, Frankie's uncle, and how much the world had changed for Philip. Um, but I was also thinking about Bunk's father, and um, who was an immigrant from El Salvador, who was a political refugee, and how much things have not changed for people like like him, like Daniel. And of course, uh, you lived through through 1987. But how much research did you have to to do to go back and and recreate that world for yourself? Oh, it was a delay because I've I've written two books with historical now set before I was born. And I feel the journalist in me, and before I was a journalist, I was a fact checker, which is a job in which like you go over articles and make sure everything is, is correct and accurate. So the fact checker in me is always terrified of getting something wrong. And of course, with historical, you're going to, if you didn't live through it, you're having to you know, make something up. So it was really delightful to write the 1980s, which I know in my bones. And so the research was really just more a matter of like, where would that lifeguard station be? And and do I have that intersection in Venice Beach correct? So it was more just making sure my memory lined up um, than anything else, because that part of the world I knew and, and what it was like to be alive back then, obviously I knew firsthand. Yes, esteemed readers, I'm so old. I lived through the 80s. Me too. <laughs> Cheers. And when I see 1987, I think, oh, well, if, if you just hang in there two years, uh, Frankie and Bug, by God, uh, Batman is coming out, and that's going to change. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, you had said that you had originally started the story in, in January 2013, then you put it away, then five years later, um, you, you're looking around at the world, you know, and um, kids are being locked in cages, there's bathroom bills being faced, and, and I'm quoting you, uh, that, you're, that, that we seem to be othering people with gleeful zeal. Do I have that right? You have that right. So what, what makes this the story to, to answer? Um, what, what you must be feeling, what we were all feeling uh, during, you don't have to say it, the Trump years. I mean, the Trump years and beyond, because like it's, it, you know, I think that these are, these are things that are constantly within our sort of societal fabric, unless we decide that we're going to do something about it. I think what made me realize is I just, I kept putting the book away thinking, I shouldn't, I, it's not my time to sort of tell this story. And then suddenly it just felt incredibly urgent. And it felt like the vantage point that I had as somebody who lived through the 80s felt important. But also I did come to understand 
that Frankie and Bugs' relationship, which is, you know, the heart of the story is this friendship story. But it really is also a story about allyship. And part of allyship is learning to decenter your own needs and ask the person you're trying to support what they need. And it's a messy process. It's uncomfortable. And I, I realized as I wrote this that the Bug and Frankie both do it wrong and they make a lot of mistakes, but they're 10 and they're not so worried about that. And so they correct each other and they, they have like a moment of feeling defensive and then they get it and they move on. So I really kind of understood that that at the heart of it is what the book was really always have been about. And, you know, it felt important to tell the story at this time. And you said it's, it's not enough to stand idly by. Um, we're not, we must not wait for justice, but hurry toward it. Uh, so what are you hoping that uh, young readers, older podcast hosts, everybody that uh, that comes into the contact with Ray and Bug uh, are going to be inspired to do? I'm hoping that it will do a couple of things, that it will remind us that, that so much of our prejudices are really are learned. These are, these are learned behaviors. And I'm not going to say that like children are perfect and that we don't sometimes have some some instincts that are, that are less than ideal. But I do think a lot of this is learned and that there's like an acceptance of among children because priorities are different when you're when you're 10. So I think that was one thing I wanted to point out, but also that you have to you have to speak up and you have to believe that you can make change. I think it can all feel so overwhelming and you think, what can one person do? But, you know, I always think of that Margaret Mead quote, never doubt a group, of, a small group of committed citizens to change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So it really is about coming together and, and working together. And so I, I really did want to, to show that. And I also think I want young people to harness what they believe and what they know to be true and hold on to it, hold on to it until they're old enough to, to vote, which is when you get to put your, your values into direct action and also to sort of speak up every day while they're at school, while they're out in the world. And having uh, you know lived through uh, the the past year with an insurrection, a pandemic, and and God knows what else we we still have to look forward to. It doesn't seem like the pandemic is is anywhere near over as of this recording. Has that changed your view in any way, or do you hold steady and say, nope, there's there's plenty of room for for hope here? You know, I, I am a Gemini at my core, so I can be both pessimistic and optimistic at the same time. And it, it's it definitely there are times when you feel bleak when you look at what's happening climate wise right now, which is pretty existential. And it's like, oh, this is happening. La, 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 la. And you're like, you know, and I feel it. I feel it when young, young people are like, grownups, what are you doing? The world is on fire. Why are you fixing it? So I, I identify and I understand that. But at the same token, like the worst feeling in the world to me is the feeling of helplessness and helplessness to me is in action. So I feel like whenever I feel that way, when I feel enraged or scared or angry about how things are going, I take that, I alchemize that and I alchemize it into action, whether it's, you know, raising money to get somebody elected, whether it's knocking on doors, whether it's starting a mutual aid group or working in a mutual aid group any kind of thing like that. As long as I am actively working toward a, a better world, like yes, there is the despair out there. There is the feeling of like, 
what is happening in our world, but I don't know what the alternative is. It, you either give into it or you push back and there is so much love in the world. I have seen that so many times over and over again. I've seen so much goodness in people, people who I disagree with on every single issue under the sun and yet there is sort of love there. I don't know how we get past this sort of caustic way that we speak to each other, but I feel like maybe young people <laughs> have a good answer there because they haven't gotten to the point where we've gotten to you know they, they're not like screaming at each other on twitter and facebook and yet and um, maybe we need to take a page from them well it's probably because they're on instagram which is it's just good thinking it's just pretty pictures exactly <laughs> yeah. so uh, at what point did you know you were writing a middle grade novel was that inherent initially with the with the original idea or did that develop as you were as you were working it was obvious when I sat down to start writing it that it was going to be told from Bug's perspective. She's 10 years old. Um, that's not to say it was easy. I had a really, really hard time. And one of the reasons it took so long for this book is it took me ages to actually crack Bug's voice. I think in the beginning I was so precious about it and it just sounded so like constipatedly adult trying to sound like a young person. And then suddenly it was as if all of my years of reading and listening to and reading aloud to Ramona and every other great Harry and every other sort of cantankerous 10 year old girl, it just sort of split something open. And once I got Bob's voice, it was like not just her voice that flowed out of me, but like how the world felt to her. I felt that so deeply. So it took a while, but I absolutely knew it had to be middle grade. There was never any doubt that it was anything else. And so having uh, now written, sounds like you've got a second adult novel uh, that hopefully we'll be seeing sooner rather than later and another middle grade novel that's going to be coming. And I assume you're not done with YA. I assume that you'll no, be. No, I am definitely not. And my adult novel is a narrator is a, is a old man in a, in a assisted living facility, but it very much centers on his friendship with a 17 year old girl. So like I always have to have the teenagers in everything that I do, you know, Frankie and Bug, Brug's brother Danny is a pretty big part of things, so yeah, I'm never going to give up on the teens. Wrote a uh, horror novel where the one of the characters is a baby for the first part, and I, there's a, a big time jump, and I was mm -hmm. looking forward to it because now I think he's uh, nine or ten, and I'm like, oh, a middle grade voice finally! I know what this is about. Let's yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Um, does your approach change when you're when you're writing an adult versus a young adult versus a middle grade, or is it is it more or less the the prose changes, but your process doesn't? The process changes uh, stays the same for every book. Um, I think you know the adults and some of the YA can be probably a little bit more structurally um, complex. Um, but I, you know that that seems appropriate for the age of the reader. But the the process is just the same. And going back to what we were talking about before, like wherever you go, there you are. I think that no matter what I write, it's going to deliver a similar experience. It's going to deliver that that, that sort of emotional um, identification because that's just that's how I write. So even if I'm writing a, a ten year old character, that's what I'm doing. And I think you know the themes that I keep revisiting. I, I really love found family, you know, getting back to Libba, who's who's like a, a sister to me or, you know, a, 
my better half. I think that um, these people that you find in your life, they are such powerful forces and family is hugely important, but so is the found family. And I think that is also a theme that I will return to from book to book to book. Now I'm curious, when, uh, when did you and Libba Bray become friends? We became friends, I think, in 2010 or yeah, 2010, I think. Um, her book Going Bovine, which won the Prince, came out right when If I Stay came out and I loved that book. And we met each other and we were very polite to each other in the beginning. And then one day we sort of sat at a cafe that we used to write at and we just had like the most honest conversation. I couldn't believe I was like showing everything to this person I barely knew. And then I remember coming home and feeling really stupid about it and sort of emailing her like, sorry if I was too. And she she said, please. There's no such thing as that. And I think after that, she and I, she she is one of, she is my, she's my person. I mean, I, I've been married for a really long time and I've got my amazing daughters, but Libba, Libba is my person. She's one of my people. And do you swap critiques or you do um, like uh, idea sessions, all of the above? It'll be different for different books. So sometimes I'll give her a draft of a book when I'm sort of struggling with it. So We Are Inevitable, I gave her a draft of, but Frankie and Bug, she just finished reading the ARC. And other times, and this is particularly pre-pandemic when we would write together in the same room, we'll stop and we'll read each other um, sections aloud. And, or we'll, um, you know, spitball ideas or if I'm having a plot problem you know sometimes I'll just call her up so we are sort of there for each other every step of the way and the same with her like she just actually came to visit me upstate and um, we could be in person and so she read me a couple of chapters of her new YA novel which is so good out loud and you know also we talked about the areas where it wasn't working and what she could do so all kinds of support all kinds of support from like actual writing critique to just like on the days where you feel like you're terrible at your job and you suck and everybody hates you lifting each other up to you know strategically planning you know ideas for like where we want our careers to be going in the long run i have a, I, you know quite a few of my writer friends are supportive like this it's a very great community to be and i feel lucky to have Libba. i feel lucky to have e lockhart jackie woodson such wonderful wonderful friends in the writing community rj palacio you're running with I just name dropped quite a few there, didn't I? <laughs> it's like the rat pack of life. Like they all live with like in the same five blocks of each other. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Everybody I just named lived in lives in Brooklyn. That's fantastic. Yeah. So when the pandemic's over, you're all gonna get together for, for parties again and, and show up and support each other at, at different Yeah, yeah, and walks around the park and you know drinks in the backyard, all the things. And so they're all in the promised land, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm the only one left behind. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain. I mean, RJ is definitely in the promised land. <laughs> and I'm reading her new book, Pony, which is just fantastic and different from Wonder, but also, again, that same generous spirit um, is the person behind who wrote it. So it, it goes from book to book to book. Well, lots of, uh, lots of questions about your process, but I did want to ask um, 
So, you know what? Let's talk a little bit about uh, We Are Inevitable, because that, that's also available. Esteemed audience can be pulling that up. What does esteemed audience need to know about We Are Inevitable? We Are Inevitable is a love letter to bookstores and booksellers, and it's also a story about a 19-year-old boy named Aaron who who compares himself to the dinosaurs after the asteroid hit. So back when dinosaurs were on the Earth, there was an asteroid that hit the Yucatan Peninsula down in sort of what would be Mexico, and um, it led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. But apparently, according to the experts, it took about 33,000 years for um, the last of the dinosaurs to die, and that's how Aaron feels, like the asteroids hit, it's clear he's gonna he's going extinct, but it hasn't happened yet, and that's because he he and his father live above their sort of failing used bookstore. Nobody goes in there anymore. His family's kind of fallen apart since his brother died of opioids, and his mom had to leave to kind of cope. And he just wants to get out of there, get out of this Washington State town he's in. And just when he thinks he's he's seen his exit, um, this guy Chad who uses a wheelchair and has like a sunny sunny disposition and a different way of looking at things comes around and a group of lumberjacks suddenly are very keen to fix up the the store that's falling apart and against Aaron's will all these people come together to kind of save this bookstore that all Aaron wants to do is unload and it's really about what happens this community and this bookstore it's got a lot of sort of laugh moments and some cry moments and it's really just about kind of figuring out what your path in life is going to be when what you thought was going to be your life is no more. And I think that that's, a lot of us are grappling with that in one way or another now. And it, I sometimes you write the world as it is, and sometimes you write the world as you want it to be. And I wanted to show this book mostly about a group of guys whose way of life has been upended and who find a new, a new way of life uh, together. Oh, and there's a girl too that he falls in love with, because there's always a girl who, who they fall in love with, or a boy, or what have you. Um, do you start? How when you start with the story idea? What do you start with? Do you have you start like um, with the absolute last sentence? Like, oh, what's the name of John Irving? I think writes the last sentence of the book, and then writes the rest of the book to get to that sentence. How much information do you have when you start? When I'm teaching writing classes, I always liken it to a Reese's peanut butter cup. What what kicks off a book for me? And the peanut butter of it all is is the premise. And you know, I describe it as that what if question, you know, what if. But the chocolate, which is very necessary to make the Reese's peanut butter cup, is the character. So it usually is a collision of a premise that I've been thinking about or some idea I've been thinking about. You know, in the case of We Are Inevitable, like, you know, what if your way of life was sort of destroyed and, you know, do you give up or do you move on? Like, what happens? And then the chocolate of it all is when the character comes to kind of drive that particular idea. So those two things are usually to start. Um, I generally know how a book is going to begin and I know what the ending is going to be, more or less but not the specifics of it and definitely not the John Irving which to me feels like cheating not that he's cheating but it for me writing to the end is like the carrot that I'm chasing if I've already written the end like what is what is drawing me forward so 
for instance, with If I Stay, I knew how it began, and I knew that the book would end with Mia making a choice of whether to live or die, but I didn't know what her choice was going to be until about halfway through. With Frankie and Bug, I knew that the book was going to end with, you know, Frankie going home for the summer, but so much of what happened in between him arriving and him leaving changed during the, the drafting of the book. So, you know, even when you think you know these things, characters have a way of having their own uh, ideas about things and you sit down and you start to write. And a dangerous thing for me is when I try and jam my characters into a, a sort of a preconceived idea of where they should go. That's why I don't outline because I find that when I do that, I have these ideas and my characters really want to go somewhere else, but I'm like, nope, you're going there. It's already been decided. And then the book kind of stalls and doesn't work. It sort of becomes sort of stuck because I'm not listening to where the characters are telling me they want to go. So how much do you, I mean, if you don't have a formal outline, do you have what I call like a grocery list where I need to pick up some of these things somewhere in here? Or do you, do you just go and let the characters make their decisions and follow them? I go and let the characters make the decisions. When I'm drafting now, I use Scrivener, even though I kind of hate Scrivener, but I find <laughs> it's got way too many bells and whistles and it just confuses me. And then the simple things that I need to, to use are very complicated, but it's incredibly helpful for drafting because it does allow to see you pacing wise, like where your scenes are falling. And you know, if you have three scenes or three chapters with, with the same character, in the same place it's like wait a second so that does help me but i i wish you know i would have a, a, a sort of a grocery list but i don't and i'll often write and for me you're getting to know the characters as you as you're writing them it's like getting to know a person and so you know you'll be on like page 200 and you'll realize oh there's that and that completely ties in with something in page 90 and page 42 and so then I go back so I really do jump around a lot when I draft I know a lot of writers are really really good about being disciplined and going from start to finish when they're drafting but I I'm sort of jumping back and forth and in fact part of my practice when I'm drafting is that I'll always rewind and go back over the previous days you know last 500 or a thousand words just because it a helps me to make sure that I'm honest that it feels good and it feels right and B, it gives you sort of a, a head start to sort of catapult you from the blank page into the new sections. So what does, and obviously um, there is no such thing as the perfect writing day because uh, every day is a little bit different, but what does an idealistic writing day look like for you? Well, here's what it looked like before the pandemic and what I hope it looks like again soon. So I get up, get my kids off to school. I make myself a beautiful cappuccino and by eight o'clock I turn on the computer and the day before I've done some, some, some good writing and when I go back over it, I, I tinker and I see things that I didn't see the day before and I go and I keep writing and I don't look up. Sometimes I forget to eat and I look up and it's like two o'clock. So I've been writing for like four or five or six hours and I stop before I get to what's what uh, I sometimes think of as like the bottom of the barrel. You always want to leave a little little juice in there so it can refill overnight, set yourself up for the next day. 
And then, you know, I would take a break back in the day. I would, I would go swimming. I would go clear my head. And then I'd come home and get to spend, like, the, the rest of the day, like, with, with my family or sort of seeing to the other parts of my job that aren't writing. Because a lot of part of – many parts of an author's job, I'm sure you know this. I'm sure you've explained this to your, to your viewers and listeners. Um, a lot of it these days in particular is not writing and not drafting. So I really do try and take the – early part of the day, which is when my writing brain works the best, and everybody has different times of day that they are the best. For me, it is probably between like eight and one. And so I really do try and, and preserve that for writing particularly, like uninterrupted if I can. So that is what a really good writing day looks like. It doesn't always happen that way because there's calls that come in, there's emails that come in, there's things that need to be done, there's appointments that you've done during the day, but that's an ideal writing day. During that initial time of drafting, do you keep your internet up or do you have to have your internet completely shut down? Um, sometimes I will just like turn it off or sometimes, you know, I, I won't even do that. I'll just turn off my volume and go to full screen. But I tend to do a ton of like reporting or researching as I write. So I'll be writing something and I don't like to kind of leave it there. So it's like if I need to sort of figure out you know, what the route would be and how long it would take to drive from a certain place to a certain place. I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to jump on Google and then look that up and I'm going to go back to it. But I find that just by working in full screen and turning the volume off so I don't hear any of my alerts, and I have most of my alerts turned off anyhow, so it's just email. That, that, that way I can really kind of write for hours and hours and hours without, without sort of interruption. Or, you know, when I get to a rest point and I need to, like, rest my brain then I can sort of toggle over and see if there's like an important email or you know go look on Twitter for what's happened but I find you know that as distracted as I am when the distraction really holds a problem for me when the writing isn't going well and it it gives me something else that I want to look at it, there's sort of the temptation is there but when the writing is there again I, if I just go into full screen mode and turn off my sound um, it's fine. And that's why when I do listen to music, I have to not listen on my computer because you can't have the sound down. I suppose I could quit my mail program. That's something else I do. Uh, and then um, well, let's talk about after the, the drafting is done, you've got uh, a, a pretty significant social media presence. You've got a full website. You've got about, what, 80,000 uh, Twitter followers as of this recording. You've got your Instagram, your Facebook. How much time are you spending on, on social media and keeping all of that going? I try and do that. I try and set up blocks of time for that. So this morning, for instance, I had like a two or three hour block where I was writing captions for things that were going to go up. I was sort of editing some videos just specifically for that. Um, so that is sort of what I will do for a lot of the content. Twitter is usually things that I'm throwing up off the cuff and um, Instagram stories are just things that I'm usually just throwing up off the cuff. But uh, for the other things, like I will sort of sit down because it has become part of my job now. It is an important part of my job. And so I just try and set specific times for it. I think that thing that to me is problematic is when it bleeds into other things. So again, I try particularly with like Instagram posts to just have them be ready, you know, auto posted. So I'm not really thinking about them or stopping myself during the day, but I definitely will have specific hours of each of each week that I have to dedicate to this.
And then um, when we mentioned uh, pandemic, uh, which of course has changed the way we're doing a little bit of everything, but how has, how did that change and impact your writing specifically? And also how has that impacted the, the launches of your books here? I would say that the launches are really the area where I really noticed an impact because everything else sort of stayed the same. It was it was interesting to see how how much of publishing versus I have a lot of friends who work in Hollywood and like that just kind of shut down. I mean, the writing rooms stayed open, but, you know, my director friend didn't work for for months because there was nothing in production. So I feel very grateful to be in a job where the entire thing from sort of writing to editing to art directing to copy editing to production to distribution, all of that could happen remotely. So the only place I really felt it was was in doing the virtual tours. And I will say by the time We Are Inevitable came out, it was June, the weather was nice, the pandemic, the COVID rates were the lowest they ever were. So I don't think a lot of people wanted to stay in and go to events but during the year I went to a lot of online events and it was great it was really nice being able to go to people's book launch and not have to be in the same city that it was or not even having to you know get dressed go on the subway for an hour go stand in this crowded room and come back so I it was great to be able to participate and feel a sense of community among the writer community while being able to stay at home and then the other answer to that is that my writing you know, I started writing to get myself out of poverty, but also I had been a travel writer and traveling around the world. And I suddenly was home with a, a newborn and couldn't do that. And I discovered that writing fiction was an escape, that you could sit down at your desk and you go anywhere in the world. And that also became true during the pandemic. My kids were old enough that I didn't really have to kind of oversee their education as much as my friends with younger children did. And so... You know, I was in New York City during the months of like April and May when it was bleak and there was constant sirens and going outside anywhere. You felt like you had to put on a hazmat suit and it was just so scary. And the writing became once again such an escape. And so I really jumped into it and I was finishing up We Are Inevitable and then Frankie and Bug during this and spending time with all these characters who I really loved. So that part of it was actually made made almost better because of the pandemic. It was more necessary for me to be able to escape into these worlds with these people who were just trying to trying to figure things out and make the best of a messy world. So you're not uh, refreshing Twitter uh, all day, checking the news and oh my God. Oh, for like the first month I was. I was refreshing Twitter and I was working um, our neighborhood started a mutual aid group and I was spending hours and hours each day doing that and it was important and necessary and helping getting that off the ground and I couldn't couldn't focus on anything else but back to our earlier point like that is how I dealt with the helplessness of it all like what can I do to help there's immediate need in my neighborhood I can put up flyers I can set up a bank account I can volunteer at a food bank I can deliver groceries to people so that is what I did for like the first month and then, you know, that dialed back a little bit and I was, you know, doing that, you know, a couple days a week as opposed to every day. And then, you know, the writing sort of kicked back in. Uh, and then um, well, the esteemed audience knows that uh, I have to ask sooner or later at no time like the present because I ask everybody. 
Uh, Gail Foreman, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I have seen a ghost. Excellent. Go on. Um, It was at night and it was, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it was something that I saw. It was sort of this presence and, and I felt it. And I also feel like I have had visitations from friends of mine who have passed and whether that's my own imagination conjuring them or something, something else. I don't know that it matters. I think those things are the same. As for UFO, I haven't seen one, but to be honest, I feel like our conception of what a UFO or an alien would look like is so narrow because we can only conceive of it as the way we know how to conceive things that they might be absolutely everywhere and we lack the ability to even perceive. So I'm not arrogant enough to think that we are the only ones in this universe. You don't think they're going to look exactly like a famous handsome actor, but with pointed ears? No, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you, uh, you of course, have spent a lot of time uh, thinking about the uh, afterlife. Um, so who better to ask, what, uh, what do you imagine the afterlife, what, what can we look forward to? Do you have a conception? You know, I just think about how things were before I was born. Like, I had no pain there. Everything was fine. But here's a strange thing, and maybe this is just I've heard the stories often enough, but I sometimes, particularly when I was younger, would experience a deja vu of things happening that I did not live through, like that happened before I was born. So within my family. So was that me just internalizing a story I'd heard or a picture I'd seen? Or is there something else? I mean, if we carry an energy within us that is separate from our corporal being, it has to go somewhere when our corporal being is no more. So these are questions that I I like to sort of ask myself just because they, they scratch a certain sort of spiritual curiosity, but I know I'll never have the answers to them, and that's okay. Yeah, I don't know that even uh, once we die, we, we necessarily have the answers or become experts on. No. <laughs> I don't know what the deal no. is. All I know is that when you lose people you love when they die you keep them alive because your love for them keeps them alive so there is immortality in how we remember people and how we talk about people so that has been a great comfort to me as you know i have had to you know say goodbye to people i love now, of course naturally transitions us to uh if i stay and i promise to esteemed audience we, we talk a little bit about that i try never to break a promise to esteemed audience um, when did you know that If I Stay was taking off, that it was going to not necessarily be a classic, although I think it's gone on to be to become a classic of, of, of young adult literature, um, but when did you know, oh, this, this book has legs, this is a big deal? So there were a lot of like big sort of, you know, these, these big things that you want to happen where like, it goes out to publishers in the U.S. and and there was there was sort of bidding wars and all of that auctions, but I, I remember this moment where somebody forwarded me an email from the woman who would become my Norwegian publisher, who still is, and she talked about reading the book and sending it to her friend to read, and how her friend called her crying in the middle of the night, saying, "You have to publish this book." And I think there was like this moment, because when I wrote If I Stay, 
I didn't have an agent. The publisher, the editor I'd worked with on my first book had left editing. My agent had left agenting. I sat down and started to write this book that to me did not feel like a viable young adult novel. It was, you know, told, you know, in, in, in this Mia's head, she's out of body. It has this back and forth structure. And when I first started to write it, I, I literally saved the draft on my computer. The file name was Why Not? As in, I don't think this is ever going to go anywhere, but why not? I felt compelled to write it. So I sort of sat in my family's living room and wrote this book, cried a lot. And so when I got that email, I just, I was like, wow, this is, this is going down into the, to the greater world and it is having an impact on people far, far away who I, who I've never met and may never meet. And that to me was just like, even before it came out and then I started hearing from readers, that to me was just like, okay, there's, it, this has touched something that is universal. It's an experience, an emotion that is universal. And, um, and that was like really incredible and it was powerful. And it did to me as an author what books so often do to me as a writer, which is that it, it made me feel like I was not alone, like that I was connected to people from all over the world just by the shared experience, even though our experiences were obviously so different but by this sort of communal experience of, of love and loss and sort of life and these hallmarks and these things that we all grapple with. Was there a moment where you said, okay, this, I've done it. I have created a book that, that reached people. I am the author I wanted to be. May never, may never do it again, may continue to do it a lot of times from now, but for certain, I can check that off my list of things I've done. I am an author of, of a beloved book. Well, had, had, did that moment happen or has it happened yet? It, it didn't happen, but I think probably because that's not how I would would think, you know? I mean, I'd love if I stay and I love, you know, the characters in that. But I, you know, I think I might like sometimes where she went, the sequel even more. And I think Frankie and Bug might be the favorite book that I've, that I've ever written. So you, as you have a longer career, you come to realize that different readers are really going to connect deeply with, with different books. Just one day, that character, Allison, like she is deeply important to a whole generation of readers. So I think that that is something. And of course, it's incredible to have a book, a friend of mine, called, you know, a book like If I Stay, where it's like lightning in a bottle, where just everything kind of lines up and it's it reaches people and it, it it has the opportunity to reach people because I think there's so many wonderful books out there that don't break through the noise and you don't get an opportunity to have that. If I Stay was so fortunate because all the stars lined up and the publisher really got behind it and was able to break through the noise. So I feel incredibly fortunate that that's going to happen, but it's by no means checking off a, a list because there's other books I want to write. There's other things I want to try. There's other things I want to accomplish. So, you know, I'm still, if there's a list, I'm still adding to it. I, I, nothing's been checked off yet. Uh, and then let's talk a little bit about the movie, because I know that you were uh, a, a, a bit involved. You were talking and emailing back and forth with the director. You're on set visiting and, 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 and looking at things. How involved were you in the, in the production of the film? 
I was not involved in the beginning, but then as time went on, and it takes a while for, um, you know, books to go into film, I started to get sort of friendly with Alison Greenspan, who was the producer and who, who died earlier this year. And she was incredible and tenacious and wonderful. And sort of as time went on, we kind of got closer. And so when RJ Cutler came aboard, um, you know, I think Allison knew that I had some sort of ideas about this and also that authors are really great um, kind of ambassadors for the readers, for the fans. And we have been living with these characters, so we know these characters very well, but we also know what's important to the fans. So right from right off the right, right, right when RJ came aboard, the three of us really kind of worked on things together. I mean, RJ worked with Shauna Cross, who wrote the script, but I was able to kind of, you know, I remember RJ would call and be like, we need Adam up on the roof. Why would Adam be on the roof? And because I know Adam so well, I could be like, here's a reason, here's a reason. So yes, I was able to be involved. I was was on the set. I went on the, the tour with Chloe when the film came out. So it was, it was a pretty amazing experience. And I really do thank Allison, who I miss, and RJ for that. And with the, with the film, um, just because there are going to be people acting out performances that at one point existed solely within you, they're going to be building sets that at one point, you know, were, were, were just in your mind and then were expanded in your reader's mind. No matter how they film this movie, there's no chance that they can 100% faithfully recreate your novel. Does that, um, is there like a period before the movie where it's just you and the and the reader and this world exists within your imaginations and then after where everyone who reads the book after who you know takes a moment to google it or look at youtube is at least going to see a trailer for the film and that's going to influence some of their view does that um is that a factor at all does that um does that bother you a bit or do you feel um, some sort of ownership of the film that, yes, I am glad that this is my world fully realized. I think that even if there's not a film adaptation of your book, something like that happens. You have your idea of your characters, of the world, of what you want the book to say, and it goes out and it goes to the readers and then it's theirs. And even if they never Google what Adam or Mia or Teddy looks like, they create their own versions in their own head. So that's kind of the only thing you control as an author is the book that you're writing right now. As soon as you let it go out the door, it, it belongs to the reader. So seeing an adaptation of that is just kind of an extension of that. It's just one more group of people interpreting it. I think in the case of If I Stay, they did such a good job at evoking the feeling of the book that I've heard from so many readers, they didn't change a thing. They changed a lot. We had to change a lot. This is a story that takes place within a comatose girl's brain. And to externalize that, you had to change some things. But I think readers or viewers didn't see it because the characters felt so true to who they were. And I remember when I first arrived on set, I had sent RJ like a bunch of things about how I thought the, the house would look, the hall house would look. And so I got to Vancouver and it was like a couple days before we were starting to shoot. And RJ's like, have you gone to the set? I said, no. So I went to the house where, where Mia lives and I stepped inside. And because the story is based on friends of mine who had died and because so many of the 
pictures and ideas I'd given to RJ came from real life. Stepping into that house was like intense. It felt like I was stepping into my friend's house and they were alive again. And I, I remember I stepped in there and it was like, you know, all these people around, set designers, what have you, I just started to cry. So it's, it's not, it's, it's, it was a humbling and beautiful experience rather than being like, oh, that couch doesn't look like their couch would look. It, it felt so authentic to who they were that it was just like, oh my God, they like conjured this thing that I created in my head based on a house and a family that no longer existed and they made it again. And so um, I had watched an amusing Instagram uh, a video that you had made. And it's just you uh, looking at your phone and it's beeping, it's beeping, and it's your fans asking uh, where she went movie, where, where is that movie? Uh, so inevitably I have to ask, where's that movie? I wish I had a straight answer for you. Um, it is the question I get the most. Hollywood works in strange and mysterious ways. So it is, there are still lots of people out there, including people on, on my team and in the film world who would like to find a way to, to make that happen. So it just it remains a question mark. I just want the, the fans to, to keep the faith and keep asking. Ah, and then um, maybe talking uh, something on the, um, if there's a spectrum, uh, maybe going a little bit toward the other side. I'd, I'd read on your site that uh, when you were uh, working on um, I, I, I Was Here, uh, which is published, in, or I'm sorry, while you were working on uh, I Have Lost My Way, um, your last way novel was I Was Here. That was published in 2016, but you'd written it in 2012. And in those intervening years, um, you had tried to write a new novel and, and you hadn't you hadn't been able to get there. You'd hit the wall on eight different novels. Do I have that right? Seven or eight, yeah. So during that, uh, what keeps you going? What gives you faith that you're going to get through it, that you're eventually going to reach Frankie and, and, and Bug and, and, and other wonderful stories? Well, I mean, a lot of those books that I thought I'd crashed and burned on, I, they just needed a little bit of time. And also, I think at the time I was probably studying, um, sort of struggling with a level of anxiety that I didn't realize was, was handicapping me. And so I got that under control. God bless Lexapro. And um, it sort of freed me up to just become the writer I used to be before this sort of got in the way. And so a lot of those books are, are now, you know, Frankie and Bug is one of those books. We Are Inevitable is one of those books. The adult book I mentioned is one of those books that within this sort of many year span I started and in some cases wrote entire drafts of, two drafts of, like this is horrible, it's horrible, I'm terrible, it sucks. Being able to quiet some of those voices and just get down to the work has really helped. So, you know, part of it is faith and part of it is knowing that, you know, sometimes you have to put a book aside and get some perspective on it and be ready for it. But the other part of it was really just about getting my mental health issues under control. I'm looking uh, at our time and I, I see we've run right through it. Where did it go? Yeah, we do. Time flies when you're having a conversation. Thank you so much for, for making the, the time for me and for esteemed audience tonight. I told you at the start I was thrilled to talk with you, and I was right to be thrilled. This has been a thrilling conversation. So uh, my much fun, Rob. Uh, I'm sorry? So much fun, Rob. You're going to keep writing. We'll have to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love that. 
Well, for uh, tonight, my last question is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back toward the start of your writing career, middle of your writing career, wherever you like, and give past you some advice that would have made a significant difference and aided your journey, and that might aid the journey of all those writers watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? You know, in my career early on, somebody told me the key to being a best-selling writer is to write the same book once a year. And I still don't think I would have heeded that advice. I, whether it's good for my career or not, I like that I get to kind of follow the stories where they go. I think the advice I would give myself, which holds true for writing and for life, is to, to listen to your gut and trust your gut. Because there are a lot of people that you have telling you, you know, what you should be doing and, you know, where you should be going. And really, at the end of the day, you have to listen to yourself. And I, there's been some times in my career that I have not done that and I have regretted it. So even if you make a wrong turn when you listen to yourself, it just feels like, OK, that's part of life. So I think that would be the advice that I would give to myself and also to recognize, you know, what I thought was some kind of writer's block or, or just a crisis in faith was really just a biochemical thing with, with anxiety that I'd always sort of grappled with and managed to keep under control, getting to a point where I just couldn't manage it on my own anymore. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media, all that good stuff? It's so easy. My name is Gail Foreman and it's G-A-Y-L-E-F-O-R-M-A-N. You add a little at in front of that or a dot com after that and you're going to find me. As always, esteemed audience, for interviews with agents, authors, editors, all the world's best people, everything that's good in this world, go to middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Pay cash money for your copy of All Together Now, a zombie story. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.